If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 2, and we will look at the last few verses of this chapter today. Uh, But as you're turning there to Ephesians 2, let let me help us get our minds back into the context of this chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. In the first half, in verses 1 through 10, Paul helps us to see that the grace of Jesus has taken we who were far from God and he has brought us near through faith in what Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection. If you are a Christian, then one, at one point you were dead, enslaved, and condemned, but now you are made alive, you are raised up, and you are seated with Christ because of what he has done. Parallel to this, to verses 1 through 10, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 helps us see that in bringing us near to God, the blood of Jesus simultaneously draws us near to all of God's children. The gospel makes us God's people in a way that was previously reserved just for the Jewish people. There was a time when the Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from God's kingdom, strangers to God's covenant, having no hope and living without God. But now, now that we are in Christ through faith in what the blood and the cross of Christ have accomplished, we are brought near to all of God's people. The blood of Jesus that reconciled us to God and killed the hostility that he had towards us in our sin is the same blood that has reconciled us to one another and killed the hostility that we have towards one another. The wall separating Jew and Gentile has been torn down, and now everyone who is in Christ is truly God's people. This supernatural unity that Paul describes here is is one that tears down not only the wall between Jews and Gentiles, but also uh, every possible wall of separation between those who are in Christ. Uh, Some of us last Sunday were sort of processing these verses uh, after our service, and Joshua uh, said it really well. If I'm remembering right, if if I'm remembering wrong, he can correct me later. But he said that God made a distinction at one point, that this distinction between his people, the Israelites, and all other people, the Gentiles, and that that distinction was a legitimate one. It was intended by God to, to make his people holy, to bring him glory. However, now in Christ, he has abolished that previous God-designed separation. So therefore, if God has declared declared the distinction that he instituted, if he has said that that is no more, then by extension, we can't make any legitimate distinctions within the body of Christ. If someone is truly in Christ, we cannot rightly exclude them based on some other cause or invent some other reason to do so. In that same conversation, Jordan was highlighting the fact that just because we have been brought near to one another through the cross, it doesn't mean that we experience that reality fully in this life. Paul was writing about this to the church in Ephesus because while the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles is truly torn down, they were still building walls of separation amongst themselves. We often talk about the already not yet of the kingdom, and we can kind of see that here, that we are brought near by the blood of Christ, And we are being brought near to one another by the blood of Christ. We are reconciled to all people in Christ, and we are being reconciled to all people uh, in Christ. And part of the way that God's word invites us to not simply understand, but also to truly experience this kind of supernatural unity that is possible for we who are in Christ is by giving us some wonderful illustrations, illustrations of who we are now as God's people. Paul calls us into a supernatural unity, and then he says through these pictures, 
this kind of unity that Jesus has purchased, this is what it looks like. This is an image of what it would be like. And these illustrations are not just for us to admire, they're for us to pursue. We might think about the, the, the cover of a jigsaw puzzle box or the front of a, a box of, of Legos, a new Lego set. And you look at that, you look at all the puzzle pieces or you might look at all the Lego bricks and you know that out of all of this sort of mess, it's possible to build something beautiful or amazing. And into the mess of all of our divisions that we make and all of the reasons that we might have as people to divide, Paul shows us what we could look like. He shows us what we're designed to look like, what the sacrifice of Jesus has equipped us to look like, what the Spirit is empowering us to look like. So as we consider these illustrations, I think maybe let's think about God's Word saying this to us. Let your corporate identity as God's people take the place of importance that it should. Let your corporate identity, so the identity that we have as, as God's people all together, your corporate identity, let your corporate identity as God's people take the place of importance that it should. In part, maybe we highlight our individual identity more than we do this corporate identity. And Paul is telling us, no, you gotta let this corporate identity of you as God's people take the place of importance that it should. So I want us to consider these three illustrations that we find in verses 19 through 22 that, that flow from the blood-bought reality that we talked about last Sunday. But as we hear them, I don't want us to hear them as optional, but rather as essential. I want us to remember Ephesians 2.10, and the statement that we, all of us together, are God's masterpiece. Therefore, our identity as Christians is not simply individual, but it's, it's corporate. And unless we're committed to reflecting this, the, the truth behind these pictures, we're not fully displaying the glory of God and what has been done through the gospel. We look like a bunch of individual puzzle pieces laying out on the floor instead of a, a beautiful landscape. We, we look like piles of Legos instead of... Um, a replica of the Millennium Falcon or the Titanic or something like that. Paul doesn't give us these illustrations so that we would go, wow, great illustration, Paul. No, he gives us to them so that we would see the beauty and the essential nature of them and that we would see where we're falling short of them and that we would long for them to be true and that we would pursue after them as God's church. So we should respond by saying, we need to let this corporate identity as God's people take the place of importance that it should in our lives. So I want to invite you to hold these pictures up to your individual heart, but also to the heart of, of the church and of the universal church. And let's think about, it. are we reflecting this supernatural unity that, that Paul says Jesus has purchased for us through his blood? Let's hear these illustrations from God's word. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and just begin in verse 19. Uh, but it is flowing from all that was stated uh, previous and all that we looked at Last Sunday, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19, God's word says, So then, you, all of you, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Let your corporate identity as God's people take the place of importance that it should. Let's consider these three illustrations of who we are as God's people through faith in Christ. First, he says, we are citizens of God's kingdom. We are citizens of God's kingdom. You see that in verse 19? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. That first phrase recalls what we looked at last week, namely that we were formerly far away from God and his people. We were excluded from God's people. We were strangers and aliens to God's nation. Maybe you can remember a time when you felt completely out of place, a moment when you felt like you didn't belong. Maybe it was your first day at a new school, or maybe you were at a party with a bunch of new friends or people you didn't know very well. If you've, ever, if you've ever visited a foreign country or immigrated to a new country, then you know this feeling deeply from that experience. The sights and the smells are all unfamiliar. You don't know the language. There's no place that you call home. Andrew and I say that that's why for an American, the Big Mac that you eat in a foreign country is the best Big Mac that you'll ever eat. Because, because McDonald's looks and it, and it feels and it tastes a little bit like home. And that's why Filipinos go to Chicago and look for not a five-star restaurant. They go to Jollibee because Jollibee tastes and smells and feels a little bit like home. It's why Marlene drives across town to get some Haitian food because it tastes and feels like home. And we can go around the room and talk about this. When Paul talks about being strangers and aliens, however, though, he's not primarily talking about this feeling of being far away from home. Rather, he's alluding to the, to the rights and the privileges that we don't have when we are in a foreign country. If I'm not a citizen of a nation that I'm living in or visiting, then there are things and I can't do and freedoms that I don't have. And even if I'm simply, if I'm, if I'm visiting that country, there's, there's rights I don't, I don't have. So you, obviously you can't get a job in a foreign nation that you're on vacation in. But you're also not even allowed to stay in that country for as long as you want because once you're there and they stamp your passport, the clock starts ticking. You have a certain amount of time that you're allowed to be there and then you have to go. Why? Because you don't belong. You're a stranger. You're an alien. You are not a citizen of that country. We understand this concept of citizenship and so did the Ephesians. In fact, they may have had a greater appreciation for the privilege of being called citizens of God's kingdom. In his commentary, Bao references a late second to early third century inscription. So that would be later than when Paul wrote. And he says, for as large as Ephesus was, which would, may have been pushing a quarter to half a million people, do you know how many citizens there were in Ephesus? 1,040 in that whole, in that whole city. So that number is probably even smaller at the time that, that Paul is, is writing, which means that citizenship is a unique privilege for a select few. Paul references his citizenship in the book of Acts. He wasn't only a citizen of his hometown of Tarsus, he was also a citizen of, of Rome, a fact that was shocking to some because of, of what? Because of how, privilege, how much of a privilege it was to be a Roman citizen. Add to that fact, not only is he a citizen of a, citizen of a city, Tarsus, and a, and a citizen of Rome, he's a citizen of the Jewish people. He, he's a Jewish citizen, he's part of God's special nation. All of these citizenships were a big deal in the ancient world. And yet, for Paul, Paul never leads with his Roman citizenship. And he's often at pains to actually downplay his Jewish citizenship. Why? Why does he do that? Well, because now that he is a member of God's kingdom through Christ, 
none of those other citizenships matter as much. Paul understood the privilege of these various citizenships, but he understood the greater citizenship of being in Christ. That's what he says. As, he says as much in, in Philippians 3, 4 through 8. This is what he writes. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in, the, confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here, Paul invites everyone to let go of every other citizenship because he says that all who are in Christ are equal citizens in God's kingdom. Once we didn't belong to the people of God, we were strangers, we were aliens, lacking all the privileges of citizenship in God's kingdom. But now through the blood of Christ, we are brought near and we are made fellow citizens of God's kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Sally Lloyd-Jones writes in the Jesus Storybook Bible that God's kingdom is wherever God is king. I think that's helpful. God's kingdom is wherever God is king. John Stott expands on that. He writes, the kingdom of God is neither a territorial jurisdiction nor even a spiritual structure. God's kingdom is God himself ruling his people and bestowing on them all the privileges and responsibilities which his rule implies to this new international God-ruled community which, he had, which had replaced the Old Testament national theocracy. Gentiles and Jews belonged on equal terms. Fans of the Chicago Cubs are sometimes called Cubs Nation, <laughs> meaning that within the United States and even around the world, there is a nation among all the nations, and this nation is made up of fans of the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> well, there's a greater nation scattered among the nations, a, a greater nation, a greater kingdom than all the kingdoms of the world, and it's the kingdom of God. And Paul shows us that if we are in Christ, we are a part of this kingdom. And therefore, we receive all the rights and all the privileges of being members of that kingdom. There's no Jew or Greek or any other division within this kingdom. All we who are followers of Jesus Christ are equal citizens of God's kingdom. And that's a pretty big deal. Paul then seamlessly moves from saying that we are God's people as citizens of, of saying that we as God's people are citizens of God's kingdom to saying that we are members of God's family. Members of God's family. That's again in verse 19. It says, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now the Jewish people were a nation, but they were also a family descended from Father Abraham. That family identity and the exclusivity of it were expressed in various laws. We might specifically think of the way that the Jewish people were only to marry other Israelites. We read in the book of Ezra how much trouble was caused by the Jewish men taking wives from other nations. Even Moses is chastised for not having a wife who was ethnically Jewish. And it wasn't only in matters of marriage that the Israelites were to be separate from the Gentiles, but in countless other ways, the law made a separation between God's family and those who were on the outside of God's family. 
Like citizenship, there were rights and privileges associated with being a member of, the, of a Jewish family as well as being a member of a Greco-Roman family. So, so for Paul to say that all who are in Christ are part of God's household did not simply mean that they needed to be friendly with each other. It also meant that they were co-heirs with one another. Paul plants seeds of this reality back in Ephesians 1.5. Ephesians 1.5, it says, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Again, Bow in his commentary talks extensively about adoption in the first century Roman, in first century Roman culture and, and how it was tied specifically to inheritance, which is why there's a reason to keep the word sons in Ephesians 1.5 and not make it sons and daughters. Not because women are excluded from God's family. That's not at all what, that's, this passage is arguing the opposite of that. But because men and women alike are made sons, meaning they are made heirs of the father's estate. This is what Bao writes. He says, Paul declares that all believers, Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, have been transferred by the fiat of the father of the whole household in heaven and earth as sons into his own household through the redeeming act of his own beloved son. In the case of believers, God has taken the most distant foreigners to be his kin for inheritance of his whole estate. God does not place these new sons into a subordinate inferior family. He appoints them all to become co-heirs with his natural firstborn son. Bal then says, these stupendous acts of divine grace have no parallel in Greco-Roman society. It surpasses even the unthinkable idea of the Roman emperor adopting a slave from the most, most barbaric hinterlands to be the next emperor. The difficulty of, of the Jewish people accepting the Gentiles as, as co-heirs is part then, we understand why that's there, but because they're brought in to be co-heirs in this family. It's, it's part, I think, of what Jesus is driving at in the parable of the prodigal son, specifically that part about the elder brother. Because the elder brother, he says, I've always been with you, Father. I've never been far away from you. And now this son who had run away and put miles between himself and the father is brought back in and celebrated equally with the elder son. Or we might think about another parable. Think about the parable where the workers come to work in the vineyard and they all arrive at different parts at various points throughout the day, later and later. But the owner of the vineyard at the end of the day, how much does he give everyone? He gives them all the same amount. And the folks who had been in the field longer say it's not fair. But the prerogative of the, vineyard, of the vineyard owner is to do whatever he wants, and he gives equal amounts to everyone. And salvation has always been of grace anyways. The Jews were chosen by God's grace, and even those like the Canaanite Rahab were, were made a member of the nation, and even an, an ancestor of, of Jesus himself, and now that Christ has come, the privileges of being in God's family and receiving the inheritance he offers are equally given to all who trust in Christ. We can't divide amongst one another because we are all members of God's household. We are all co-heirs with Jesus. Now pause for a moment and recognize what Paul has done. <laughs> Paul has taken two concepts that are at the heart of how we divine, define ourselves. And he says that they both find greater fulfillment in Christ and in being a part of his people. 
So meaning the country that you are born in or are a citizen of is not as important as the fact that you are a member of God's kingdom. The family that you are born into is not as important as the fact that you are a member of God's family. So just think for a moment about your nationality. What would you, how would you answer that question? My nationality, I am a, I am an, it's not as important as being a Christian. It's not as important as being a follower of Christ. And you have more unity with your fellow believers than you have with your fellow countrymen and countrywomen. Think about your family. Think about your last name. The greater family that you are a part of is the family of God. And if you are a Christian, you should see that identity as more important than anything else. Now, if we're not careful, that could sound like I'm calling you into some sort of a cult, right? (laughs) Now, of course, we're not saying that. I'm not saying neglect your blood relationships. There's something valuable in that, for sure. But I'm simply saying that our status as children of God is more glorious and more shaping to our identity and who we really are than anything else. What did Jesus say when they told him that his mothers and his brothers were seeking him? Matthew chapter th- Mark chapter 3, verses 33 through 35, he tells, it tells us this. He answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around them, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Friends, if we're in Christ, it changes everything about who we are. It becomes the most important thing about who we are. Now, there's a transition in the illustrations that happens in verse 20 where Paul moves from speaking of God's people uh, as people in a nation or people in a family to bricks in a building. (laughs) As we read, we realize that Paul is not speaking of any old building. He's, in fact, talking about the temple. And so he says that we who are God's people found in Christ are stones in God's temple. That's the third illustration. Stones in God's temple. Now, you might think that moving from talking about being citizens in a kingdom or members of a family to stones in a temple would be moving from greater and more powerful illustrations into lesser illustrations. But Paul doesn't seem to think so. Uh, In fact, he gives the first two illustrations in one verse, but he expands on this one in three verses. Given the central place of the temple for the Jewish people and for the Ephesians, Paul may have been saving his best and his most poignant illustration for last, actually. Before we know uh, he's talking about a temple, he seems simply to be talking about a house. He says that the Ephesian church, that, to the Ephes- the, he says of the Ephesian church that those who are a part of it are stones and they're stacked upon a foundation, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, prophets, we might think about the Old Testament prophets, and that, that's certainly true that we're built on the, the ministry of prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and even Moses. But the order here with apostles first, followed by prophets, and that connection to apostles, meaning those who had seen the resurrected Christ and had been specifically appointed as his messengers, that, that connection and the order would seem to place the emphasis on prophets in the early church. So the church in Ephesus, the members of it are built on the apostles and the prophets, specifically on the message of the gospel that was proclaimed by Paul and by the other apostles and the prophets in the early church. John Stott extends this to the present day to remind us that the the church is built on the New Testament, on the God-inspired, holy, 
spirit-preserved word of God. It's the, the teachings of the New Testament scriptures that form one of the deepest foundation layers of the church, and it's only as we may remain true to these scriptures that we will find ourselves strong and steady. To not give serious attention as a church to the apostles' teaching in the New Testament or to make our own ideas equal with the truth of Scripture is as dangerous and as foolish as if you went down into your basement and started pulling blocks out from the foundation. Everything's going to fall apart if we lose the foundation of the New Testament teaching of the apostles. But even the apostles and the prophets are not the most important stone in the foundation, are they? Because Paul says that Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. He's a perfectly shaped, well-set cornerstone. That's crucial to a building, isn't it? It determines that that building is going to be level and, and plumb. Think about building a skyscraper, and you put that cornerstone down. If it's off by just the slightest degree, the further you stack those blocks up, the further off it's going to be. But Jesus is the perfect cornerstone. He's the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure is now joined together is what Paul's talking about. It's, it's this linking up together. It's in Christ that this building, the church, the people of God, finds its unity. And the diverse stones that are laid on the foundation are ultimately held together because of Jesus, the cornerstone. Jesus as the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets as the foundation stones might remind us of what Jesus said to Peter after his good confession. Remember that Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, to which Jesus says, you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. We like to have discussions about, was Jesus referring to Peter or was Jesus referring to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ? Which one is the foundation? I wonder if Paul answers that question by saying both. That, that the church is built on who Jesus is and what he has done. He's the cornerstone. But the church is also built on the teaching of the apostles like Peter about who Christ was. Well, the picture, either way, is, is a building of a, it's a, this picture of a, a building that's a work in progress. So the church, God's people, we see they are stones. Uh, and, and if you're thinking about the Ephesian church that he's writing to, these stones of members are being stacked up and built together into this, this building. They're being stacked on top of, of the apostles and the prophets. And then we go down a little bit deeper and we see that the final layer of stones is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. So we've moved deeper and deeper into the foundation. But then in verse 21, Paul, it's like he starts moving back out from the cornerstone. And he says that this building is, is growing and it's growing into a temple, a holy temple. Now let's get our minds into the mindset of, of these first century hearers. Hearing of, of a temple, the Jews that were reading this letter most certainly thought of the temple in Jerusalem, this place where God met with his people in the Holy of Holies, his presence residing there above the Ark of the Covenant. But what about the Ephesians? Well, the Ephesians would have imagined the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis right there in the middle of their city, one of the seven wonders of the, of the ancient world. But Paul is saying that the focus of worship for those who are in Christ is not in Jerusalem at the Jewish temple. It's not in Ephesus at the temple to Artemis, these beautiful buildings. Rather, God's people built on Jesus Christ and the teaching of the apostles are joined together to build an, an entirely new temple in the Lord. 
Not a physical temple in a specific place, but a temple made of God's people. We said that God's kingdom is wherever God is king. So where is God's temple? It's wherever his people are. That's God's temple. And what was the purpose of this temple? Two purposes we see here. First, the temple was to grow into a holy temple in the Lord. It was to be holy. It was to reflect God's glory. And so too, we as God's people are set apart to show forth his glory in this world. In the same way that a temple sits on a hill and calls people to worship our life as the church is to do the same. In the same way that a temple is to show the greatness of the one being worshiped, so too we are to show the beautiful character of God as we love one another and as we love the world around us. The temple is also, in verse 22, it's, an, it's a place for God to dwell. Look at that, verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In times past, remember God said he would dwell with his people how? In a tabernacle or in the temple in Jerusalem, but now he says that his people are the temple. Yes, individually, God's spirit dwells in us, but here we see that it's, it's, God's, it's in God's gathered people that God dwells. God is a, building a temple, and it, it's a house for himself. No longer do we need to travel to a specific place because wherever God's people are, his spirit is there. No longer do people need to come to a specific place to worship because we can go, and God's presence goes with us. And the hope of the new kingdom is that the dwelling place of God will finally be fully with us as all of God's people are joined together in a temple of diverse stones unlike any other building. If you are in downtown Chicago and you walk down Michigan Avenue and you go by the Tribune Tower, you can notice in the bricks of that building there's, there's fragments of different stones from different buildings around the world. There's there's a stone from Notre Dame in, in Paris. There's, there's a stone from St. Peter's in Rome. There's a stone from a temple in China or from a shrine in Japan. There's even a fragment of the Twin Towers that's right in the foundation of this building. Well, in, even a, in an even greater way, God's temple, his church, will be made up of various stones, various people from all nations, from all around the world, gathered, fit, held together by Jesus Christ, proclaiming his glory, holding his presence within us. The church, not the church service, not the church's ministries, though they're part of the church, but the church as the gathered people of God is vital. It's important. Some people want to isolate themselves. They say that they're Christians and they love Jesus, but they just don't like the church. You ever heard that? Some people get frustrated with the church, and rightfully so. The church can be a frustrating place sometimes. But Paul shows us that true Christianity doesn't retreat from the church. It presses deeper into the unity and the glory of God that is seen in God's gathered people. The, the, these illustrations, they help us to see this reality. You can't be a nation by yourself. You, you can't be a family by yourself. You need multiple people in your family. Multiple people that you might not get along with, but they're family, and so you're stuck with them because they're part of your family. Also, a building requires every single stone and a Christian who's part of God's people. That, that makes us a, a community of people together. And we need every part of this building together to, to reflect God's glory. 
Being a part of God's people is more important than your national identity. It's more important than your family name. It's greater than any other allegiance that you have in this world. And it's, it's, it's not done in isolation. It's, this is seen as we are together as God's people. Because it's only together that we can truly worship and truly reflect the greatness of who God is. So I guess the question is, is being a part of God's people as important to us as it should be? Is there a deeper commitment than the one that we have to God's church? Maybe the Spirit is calling you into a deeper commitment to the church. Maybe he's calling you into baptism or church membership membership as a, a next step. Maybe uh, placing a priority on the gathering of the church is what he's asking you to do. Or maybe something else, but whatever the Spirit is calling us to, I think that through his word, he's not just given us illustrations so that we would say, wow, what a beautiful illustration of what the church is. No, he's saying, brothers and sisters, let your corporate identity as God's people take the place of vital importance that it should. Let's take a moment and let God's Spirit speak to us and help us to apply his word. And after that moment of silence, I'll close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel that by your blood you have purchased people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That it's through your cross that you have made us one. Lord, this is true, and yet it is also becoming true in us. It's a reality, but it is not yet a reality. And so, Lord, we want to to grow, to look more like a nation that is committed to you as citizens of God's, of your kingdom. We want to grow to, to be your family, to know all the rights and the privileges, the privileges that we have as children of God. We want to understand what it looks like to be a temple where you dwell and where your glory is seen. But we confess that we are one small expression of all of these things, and yet, we are an expression of these things, that we as a church are an expression of your temple, that we are an expression of your kingdom, that we are an expression of your family. So Lord, would you help us to reflect you and especially in the way that we would gather from different walks of life and different nationalities and that we would show the the beauty that of the unity that you have purchased by your blood. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.